running out of excuses as to why I don't have my technology working right away. So last year it was, uh, I was new to this. I'm not really new to this anymore. You guys have me here to do the, the New Year's sermon for three years running now. It's been really, really good. I'm thankful for it. I'm always thankful for the opportunity to um, open the Word of God with you guys. If you could open your words, uh, open the Word to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, and we will be, uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and I'm going to um, read down through verse 10 here at the beginning, and then at some point, if I have time, I will, um, I'll start again in, in verse 11, but um, this will come in two sections. This, uh, this passage was, is part of the book of Deuteronomy. It was given when uh, Moses and the children of Israel were on the cusp of entering the promised land. They, um, they had come through the wilderness, and they had uh, been given the law. They had been delivered out of Egypt. They had wandered for 40 years. They had anticipated the promised land, and now they were on the brink of entering it. They had already conquered a couple of kings um, on the east bank of the Jordan, and they were about to cross into the new bank. And um, Moses, as he's renewing the covenant, he, he preaches a series of sermons to them, and this comes out of kind of the middle of one of those sermons. So I think it's, it's fitting, and we've already said this, I think, this morning. Uh, Rob was saying that, you know, it's fitting at New Year's to kind of look back and to kind of look forward, you know? That's, uh, that's just what we always do in this country, I guess. I'm sure they do it in other countries, too. But this, this passage has a lot to do with looking back and looking forward. So let's read. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, a land of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Um, David's already mentioned this morning that my family and I recently moved. Um, we had been living on Lane Avenue, which is right near here, and we moved over to Barnard E.B. At least I think that's how you pronounce it, Barnard, Barnard, something like that. I've got to figure that out. 
while I lived there. But we moved over to Barnard EB, which is only a, like a block away. It's about a block further away from the church. Maybe two blocks, I guess. Anderson doesn't really have blocks. But if it did have blocks, that's what it would be. <clears throat> and um, by the way, many of you here helped me in that move, and I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. This, the church was very kind to us. A bunch of the guys came over and threw a bunch of stuff in the back of their trucks and hauled it all over there, and we had a good time. But anyway, uh, while I was looking for that house, while we were looking at that house with our real estate agent, uh, the name really struck me. It's, it's kind of an odd name, Barnard E.B., and I, I knew that he was a Confederate general. All of those uh, streets over there are named after Confederate generals, but he was the one that I didn't really know anything about. And I was a history major at Anderson University, and uh, so the other ones, I kind of had an idea of their role in the war. Barnard, not so much. So I had to look him up. Turns out um, he was a South Carolinian, which is probably why he got his name at the, on the street sign, because he was from this area. And um, he, was a, uh, he was made a brigadier general right before the Battle of uh, First Bull Run. That was right at the very beginning of the war. He had fought in other wars previously, the Mexican-American War, all that. But right before the, the beginning of the war, he joined the Confederacy, and he was made a brigadier general right in front of the, right before the battle of, uh, the first battle of Bull Run. He's famous for exactly one thing. Um, during the battle, that battle, he looked in front of him, and he saw General Thomas Jackson and Thomas Jackson's brigade of Virginian soldiers marching forward in front of him. And he was kind of behind them also marching forward. And he yelled to his men a battle cry. He said, there stands General Jackson like a stone wall. Rally, to the, uh, rally behind the Virginians, or rally to the Virginians. Um, follow them into battle. His heart was swelling with pride when he said this. And that's, by the way, how Stonewall Jackson got his nickname. He was called Stonewall Jackson ever after that. And Barnard E.B. gave him that nickname. Um, the Confederate armies marched forward. They would win that battle, Battle of First Bull Run. It was kind of one of the high points of the war. And, um, and it was kind of also the high point of pride in the Southern cause for those generals. But Barnard, later on, just really a few minutes after he said those famous words, he caught a piece of shrapnel in the stomach, and he died in considerable pain the next day. He never lived to see the rest of it. He saw the end of that battle, but never lived to see the rest of it. General Thomas Jackson, Stonewall Jackson, you know, bullets can't pierce stone walls, the man whom he had so much faith in, later on in Virginia, uh, somewhere uh, right after Chancellorville, or right near Chancellorville. He was shot by one of his own pickets in the left arm. He had to have his arm amputated, and he died from pneumonia, uh, I think eight days later. Stonewalls don't die from pneumonia. <laughs> he was supposed to live. He was supposed to lead his troops to victory. Many of those Virginian soldiers, which Bernard took so much pride in, likewise died. Um, ultimately, the, the dream of a confederacy of independent southern states would die. And ultimately, the, the, uh, the economy based on plantation agriculture on which it had rested collapsed. It fell apart 
For decades, it was gone. Pride implies faith in the object of the pride. As such, pride is extremely dangerous. It's quite deadly, as we've seen in our passage. God's people have always struggled with pride, with his deadly pride. It was a real problem with Adam and Eve in the garden. And it's been a real problem throughout church history all the way down to this present day. According to this passage, God's people tend to grow prideful when they forget what God has done. And it's very, very easy to forget what God has done. That is why right after the people are urged to keep the whole command in verse 1, they are urged to remember in verse 2. The two go hand in hand. Uh, If God had not initiated the relationship, and if um, he had not led them out of Egypt, then they'd have no reason to worship him. And if they forget what he's done, then it's as if it's never happened to them. If they forget, their pride swells. Pride would tell them that they had managed the wilderness. It's so tempting to just leave God out of it. Why did God lead the children of Israel into the wilderness in the first place? He didn't have to. There are other routes to the promised land. There's a sea route. He could have just given them boats, and they could have crossed right over, um, cut off that corner of the southeastern Mediterranean. But God chooses to humble his people in order to show them where life comes from, to show them the source of life. And this was especially important after their first failure to enter the land back in chapter 1. If you remember that episode, 40 years before this event, Moses recounts it again in Deuteronomy here, but 40 years before, um, two things happened in sequence. The children of Israel got right up to the brink of the promised land, and when they heard that the people of the land were huge and that their cities were well fortified, they fell back, and they refused to do what God told them to do and enter the land. And then the second thing that happened, after God said, no, you're going to have to go back into the wilderness now, um, now that you've fallen back, their pride swelled up. They said, no, wait a minute, we got this. And they tried to enter. They tried to conquer the land on their own strength. And that entire generation had to be culled. That generation died in the wilderness. And those who had been infants at the time of the first invasion attempt were chosen to conquer the land. Forty years in the wilderness had two purposes. They had to kill off that first generation, and it had to teach the second generation humble reliance upon divine grace. They had known that God was reliable, that he could accomplish everything that needed to happen, but they also needed to know that they could not accomplish what needed to be done apart from God's enablement. God let them feel the absence of food, and he gave them manna. They had to understand that they weren't good enough or strong enough or numerous enough to provide for themselves. You see, you can believe that God is able, you can understand that he is able, but if you also hold your own abilities as kind of a fallback option, if you also hold, hold on to the option of acting outside of God's will because you think you got this, then you're in deadly peril. This is because man does not live by bread alone, but by all that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus understood this perfectly 
when he was living out the life of the people of Israel on earth. Um, and uh, Jesus quotes verse 3. I'll read it again. And he humbled you and, led you and let you hunger in the wilderness and fed you manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know, and this is the part that Jesus quoted, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus had been tempted early on in his ministry when he was t being tempted in the wilderness. He had gone 40 days without food, and Satan tempts him to rely on his own power to create food. And it would have been sinful for Jesus to have done that because he had to live out the life of, of the people of Israel, of the children of Israel, um, and he had to do it perfectly where they had failed. And he had to do that so that he could reconstitute the children of Israel and include us Gentiles in that. Jesus understood that it's God who provides, that God provides the sustenance. God provides what we need. God lifts us up and sustains us. And God provides in, in scarcity. He provides for his people in scarcity to show them where life comes from. If we always lived in abundance, I don't think we'd ever really even think about where that abundance came from. It'd be like a fish in water. If all we had was an easy path or um, everything that we wanted, I don't know that it would ever occur to us, wait a second, this has all got to come from somewhere. This didn't come from me. But God leads us in scarcity to show us where life comes from. And when he does provide, he often provides what his people need rather than what they want. Not always, but often. He does this very, very faithfully. You know, the Israelites had a very good idea of what kind of food they wanted when they were wandering in the wilderness. Uh, they wanted some fine Egyptian cuisine, right? They wanted meat, and they wanted garden vegetables, and they told God so. They placed their food orders with God through Moses. Um, but God didn't give it to them. He gave them this, uh, this sweet, flaky stuff um, that... Uh, they had, to gather, they had to gather every morning in very small amounts, and it didn't keep. And they didn't even know exactly what it was, this manna. And today we still don't really know exactly what it was. It was odd and it was quirky. It rotted quickly, but it sustained them. Now the people let God know exactly how they felt about him messing up their food order. But he didn't back down. He was going to give them exactly what they needed, whether they liked it or not. He did this to humble them, that they may know that man does not live by bread alone, but by all that proceeds from the mouth of God. It reminds me of um, when my dad and my brother-in-law started a construction company back in 2008. Um, they had a real definite plan of how they thought God was going to provide for them. Um, my dad, he's, he's a planner. He really, he gets his ducks in a row, and he knows exactly how things are going to go. And didn't mean for that to rhyme, sorry. But he, he, had a, he had a very definite business plan, and it involved building spec houses. It involved um, flipping houses and stuff like that. Well, then 2008 happened, and the real estate market collapsed, Nobody was building any houses anywhere in the country. All of that just stopped. Very few people were flipping houses. There were some people who could find deals and, you know, make things happen as far as flipping houses, but it, it just it went away. 
um, that whole business that they had planned. But God provided them for them in ways that they didn't look for. He provided for them to do repairs. He provided for them in crawl spaces and in attics. Not the most comfortable places. Not where we would have wanted to work. But God provided. And I remember um, my dad and my brother-in-law talking to David Bass and I on a couple of different occasions. And they would say he would, something like this. They would say, you know, this is not what I expected. But every evening, I go home, and the lights are still on. Every evening, I go home, and the heat still works, and there's still food in the fridge. God's provided us in ways we never looked for. He's provided for us in ways we never looked for. And, um, and God's blessed us. They were giving testimony. They were remembering what God had done for them. As for myself, I had hoped um, to be ministering to a group of people on the far side of the world by now. That's why I had gone to seminary. That, that was my plan. That's how I thought that God was going to provide for me. But that's not, how, that's not how he provided for me. He gave me a people here, a people who I've already said this morning, a people who love me, who love my family, and um, an opportunity to minister here. He's given me a job here where I grew up, just a few minutes from the building I was born in down at the old hospital. God loves his people, and he provides for them. God also provides in, in, um, in the details that his people don't necessarily notice, and sometimes in details that are pretty obscure. Look, look down at verse 4. I always thought this was kind of odd when I read it. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. The Bible mentions that, I think, three times. Here, and then later in Deuteronomy, when he's kind of repeating this, and then in Nehemiah, when Nehemiah is quoting this to the people of Israel later on. Um, your clothing did not wear out. That's kind of weird. Like, it's a weird way to provide. You know, he could have he just had them get clothes the normal way, right? I mean, they were wandering in the wilderness, but they could have traded with people. There were, there were caravans and stuff like that. But he chose rather to have their clothing not wear out. He paid attention to the details, the very minute details that they might not have even thought of. If you were a, children, a child of Israel growing up in the wilderness, and this is the case, you might not have even known that clothes really do wear out. You would have no concept of that. This whole, what Moses is telling those kids right now, might have just been going over their heads. They're like, what, clothes wear out? Huh? But God provided for them in that. He provided for them in a way that was totally unlooked for. It reminds me of um, a few years ago, I was talking to, uh, or a friend of mine was talking to a group of guys and he was talking about a house that he had just moved into, and he was, um, he was saying, you know, God just, God just led me every step of the way into that house. He made everything work out. You know, it was just the right house at just the right time. There was a good deal. Um, all of the closing stuff just worked out. God just ushered us right in. And in my own pride at the time, the first thought that went through my mind was, does God really care what kind of house you live in? Does God really care where where you're moving, does, does God um, care if you live, you know, over here or over here? Does he care if things go well in your, in your closing or not? And I, I thought that was kind of silly, but then according to this passage, he does. He cared about the clothing on the Israelites' back because he cared about the Israelites. He cared about my friend, um, what house he lives in, because he cared about my friend, and he cared about my friend's family. 
He led him to that place in ways that were unlooked for, ways that were obscure. He led them to that place in the details that God totally had in, um, under his control. And my friend was, was glorifying his God in that. God also provides discipline. I'm just going to skip through this pretty quickly. Um, if you look back at verse 5, it says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. He disciplines his people as sons. You know, a good father is not arbitrary or wild with his discipline. He doesn't reduce his children to abject shame. He doesn't fail to lovingly care and provide for them even while he is disciplining them. That's how God disciplines. Likewise, he disciplines his people with a purpose so that they might keep his commandments. He's not just venting his anger or taking out his rage on his people. Like a good father, he's leading his children to the truth in that discipline. Um to his commandments and his ways and the good fear of him. So how do we apply all this? You know, it's good to, I enjoy thinking about, you know, groups of people three and a half thousand years ago, something along those lines, and, you know, how they related with God. It's, it's kind of fun. I enjoyed those history classes and seminary and stuff like that. But how does it apply to us? What do we do with it? What do we do with this knowledge um, of how God acts? First, it's important to remember that God still loves us in the same way that he loved his people back then. There's not really much of a separation. Sure, there's some details that are different. You know, God's not trying to get you to acquire real estate in the eastern Mediterranean or something like that. But God loves in the same way that he loved back then. And so we can expect the same things from God, and we can expect him to expect the same things that he expected back then. I would encourage you to look for God to humble you, just as he humbled his people of old. Remember where God has led you and how he has provided for you and how he has disciplined you. Chances are, if you're old enough, you've lived through some experiences of suffering and want, experiences in which you knew that God was working on you and he was shaping you. He was shaping your, your affections He's shaping your loves. Don't forget those times. The Hebrew word uh, for remember here in, um, in verse 2, it's zakar. And it, um, it contains more than just gathering information or holding information. The, the ancient Israelites, in their language, they, they knew that people weren't like computers. <laughs> you know, they, they didn't just have some place where they could categorize and store information in the back of their head without it actually doing something or without actually interacting with it. Um, the word is also used in Scripture uh, for things like calling to mind, naming, celebrating, boasting, remember. Remembering is an activity. My friend was remembering that God had led him into this house when he was standing around with me and a couple other guys and he was talking about it. It wasn't when he was holding it in some semi-conscious place in the back of his mind. It was when he was naming what had happened and boasting in his God and your God. Remember 
where God has led you. Remember the times when he has let you hunger, that he might humble you. Many of you, we've already heard in the prayer actually this morning, many of you have been without work. You've been without a vehicle. You've been without your health. You've been without a spouse, without a close friend. You've been through times like that. And in your pride, you've been tempted to fill those gaps without reference to God. We've all been tempted like that. Without trusting God or his plan for your life, you've been tempted to use pornography or other temporary sexual relationships. You've been tempted to fill the gaps with drunkenness or excessive food or entertainment. Or you've been tempted to make up for your losses by exalting yourself in the eyes of your friends at the expense of others. But God has led you in the wilderness that he might humble you. He has let you hunger and he has fed you with manna that you did not earn and you did not make. He did this because he wanted you to know, to experience, that man does not live by those things, but by everything that comes from God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he has redeemed you through the new covenant in his blood. And he has redeemed you and all the rest of his people from slavery to those things. Remember that. Tell it to your children as you're walking around or sitting at your table. Celebrate it every Sunday at this table or whatever church God has you. Celebrate God's redemption. Only remember God. Remember his commandments and his great action in history and in your history. God's people also tend to grow prideful when they fail to anticipate what God is doing and what he will do. So they, f- they tend to grow prideful when they fail to remember. They tend to grow prideful when they fail to anticipate the future as well. We all do this. Um, and it's very important to remember that this is not the end of the story. This isn't the end. We sang about this in a couple of songs this morning. Let me see if I can... Um, the last two songs. The uh, Ring Christmas Bells and He Shall Reign Forevermore. <laughs> We sing about that idea that we're living in a time when we've not yet entered into our full rest, into our full inheritance. Moses preached the sermon to the Israelites when they had begun to establish their kingdom on the east bank of the Jordan, but before they had come into their rest in, their, in its fullness, before God had defeated all of the nations, the seven great nations, inside the promised land. And if you look back at uh, chapter 7, flip over with me to chapter 7, verse 17, and I'm going to read through verse 19. It says this, If you say in your heart, These nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. But you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which your God brought you out, so will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. There was a victory coming that was far, far greater than what, what had already taken place. Or maybe, maybe not greater, but a completion of that. When God brought them out of Egypt, that was a great act of redemption. When God brought them into the promised land, that was a great act of redemption. And they were to look forward to that. And we too have not yet entered into our full inheritance. And regardless of what you believe about eschatology, 
If you're a believer in Christ, the end is certain. Christ returns. He defeats his remaining enemies and sets up his kingdom on this earth in its completed form. It is very, very easy to forget the anticipation of Christ's ultimate victory. We get wrapped up in the, in the politics of today and we see the sin in the world around us and we just forget. We don't, we, don't, we don't realize that God's kingdom is marching forward, that he's building it and has been building it all this time. The Advent season is kind of set up to remind us of that. You know, we just, we just finished that and many churches around the world observe it where it's a time when when you're anticipating the celebration of the first coming of Christ, and that's kind of a practice for anticipating his, his actual second coming that is still in the future. We look forward to that. And ultimately, um, this meal also looks forward to that, to the time when Christ will come again, and he mentions it several times when he institutes the Lord's Supper. Um, we remember that he's that it's instituted until, to remember him until he comes again, and that he will eat it with us in paradise, drink this cup in paradise, it says in Matthew 26, 29. We have much to look forward to, and if we fail to look forward to that, the result is often fear and pride, um, and the two tend to go hand in hand. But what if God has already led you to a place of abundance? What if you're hearing this right now and you're thinking to yourself, um, I don't feel like I'm in a wilderness. I hadn't really been in a wilderness for a while. I hadn't been, um, you know, God's got me in a place of abundance. Well, that's addressed here too. Look, look at chapter 8. I'm going to keep reading for a little while longer and go a little further. I'm going to read... Um, verses 11 through 14, and then skip down to verse 19. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then in your heart, or then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then down in verse 19, he, after he recounts the time in the wilderness again, it says this, and if you forget... Sorry, I need to read verse 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And then 19, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish. It's interesting that in weddings, you know, we usually, the, the vow usually says something like for richer, for poorer. Have you ever thought about that? You know, you'd think that in the good times, it's kind of easy to keep the covenant, right? It's kind of easy to keep that relationship flourishing when, when things are good and, you know, when you're experiencing those blessings. Why do we say for rich or for poor? It's because whoever came up with those vows, I don't know, they're the traditional vows, whoever came up with them understood 
that life is full of both good times and bad times, and often good times can be more dangerous to covenant faithfulness than bad times. Often, if, you're, if God's led you into a place of abundance, that can be more dangerous to your faith than the wilderness was. We say for richer or for poorer because we know that there are temptations implicit to both. When you, come into a good, when you come into good times, into a good marriage, into a good family, when you come into good grades or a mindset that is free from anxiety or depression, the temptation is always to say, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth, as it says in verse 17. The temptation is to forget. The temptation to forget is strongest in the good times. And right now our country is going through a time of, of unprecedented economic growth. You hear about this on the news if you follow economic news. It's, um, you know, it's been, it's been uh, what, over 10 years since the, last, the end of the last recession, something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers. But, and there, there are a few people now living who remember the lean times of the Great Depression. My grandmother, a little bit, um, she was in Europe at the time, but she, uh, um, her memory is, is gone now, but she's still alive, and while she was remembering things, she could remember the Great Depression, and she could tell us about it. Both sides of my family, my grandmothers, were like that. And there's, none, there's no one who remembers the lean times after the Civil War. I talked to when I was a kid, I remember talking to some of the older ladies in our church who had talked to people, you know, when they were little girl, when she was a little girl, she had talked to a much older woman who remembered the lean times after the Civil War when, um, when things were rough and when there, there was nothing to eat. They remembered those things, but now we're in a period of time when we would tend to forget them. We would tend to forget our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have access to those things. We would tend to forget the command to love our neighbor as ourselves and instead to say, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Ultimately, as I've said several times already, pride is deadly. Sin in general is deadly. When I was a child at uh, Vacation Bible School, I memorized... Romans 6.23, by heart, says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I've heard and read those verses many, many times since then, and they've not lost none of their truth. They've lost none of their power. And you may be hearing this this morning, and you may be thinking, I don't have anything to remember. I don't know what it is. To trust in Christ. If that's you, I urge you to trust him now. Rely on him, and he will forgive you of your deadly pride. He will lead you through suffering and want. He will care for you, and ultimately, he will lead you into your promised rest that he gives to his people. Let's pray. Lord God, <clears throat> I thank you for leading this church. I thank you for leading these people. I thank you for leading your people um, for all of these 2,000 years since you ascended into heaven, Lord Jesus. I thank you for leading your people through the wilderness and for making us a part of that people whom you have brought into their rest and whom you will ultimately bring into their rest. God, thank you. I pray that you would give us a mind to remember, to remember what you've done in our lives, 
to remember your redemption, to remember our, our sin, and to ultimately remember the great salvation that you are working, that, that we eagerly anticipate, Lord. I pray that you would allow us to remember that today as we celebrate communion. I pray that you'd give us good rest here now this afternoon as we anticipate our ultimate rest. In Jesus' name, amen.